following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. If you ever start a new activity with a trainer or a one-on-one instructor, or even like a team coach in team sports, be it uh, playing a sport, joining a team, or playing a musical instrument, or maybe working at a new job and getting some on-the-job training, you might be put through a series of tests, of graded trials, if you will, to determine what you can handle, what you can do, where your limits are, where your expertise lies, what your competencies are, however you want to put it. Well, in Matthew chapter 8, what we've been going through over the last several weeks, through a a series of really three trials or three kinds of trials, our Savior shows us what He can handle, that He can accomplish whatsoever His people need Him to accomplish to deliver them out uh, out of their difficulties for their good and also for God's glory. Following close on the heels of the Sermon on the Mount, where Christ was teaching with great authority, Matthew first records for us a series of miraculous, what? Sympathetic physical healings that the Lord works at the beginning of Matthew 18, in those first uh, 17 uh, verses. And then he proceeds to a a second scene, uh, really hitting a climax on, on the sea. In these little fishing boats, what happens? A seismic storm gets stirred up, and the, the, the waters are troubled. And in addition to the waters, the disciples are troubled. They're absolutely at their wit's end. And what does Jesus show them? That he has amazing power, not only over physical ailments in our bodies, but even over the forces of nature, which threaten us from outside our bodies. So Jesus has power over disease. He has power over nature. And now, in our text this evening, we see that he has power over the most dreadful forces of supernatural chaos yet to make an appearance in his gospel. For even when Satan himself came to Jesus in the wilderness, he did not come in this picture of violence and defilement and and, and utter insanity with these demon-possessed men. And so what we see in this text is that Christ, the Son of God, takes command over demonic forces of evil as he delivers his people from death. Christ, the Son of God, takes command over demonic forces of evil as he delivers his people from death. For truly, these two men are his people that he comes to save. He has a divine appointment there in the land of the Gadarenes. It's for this purpose. So we'll consider this under two headings. In the first place, the nature of demonic evil. Very briefly, as it's expressed in this text, uh, we'll draw from a couple other places in Scripture, but I can't by any means give you a comprehensive picture of what's called demonology or the study of fallen angels, the study of demons uh, in a sermon this evening. But from this text, there are some important points that we should glean about the nature of demonic evil. And then, once we have that kind of set for us, we'll then consider Christ's deliverance of his people. What it is that 
Christ is showing us about himself and how he delivers these two men from these forces of demonic evil. So the nature of demonic evil in the first place, there are two things I want to show you about this from this text, um, about demons, if you will, about spiritual evil, about the terrors that go bump in the night. And that is that it's fundamentally destructive. It's not life-giving. It's destructive. And then secondly, that demons, insofar as they have personalities and consciousness, that they can communicate, that they can apprehend things and respond to things, are fully aware of who Jesus is, yet without any profit, without any benefit to themselves. So not only are they destructive, but they're also fully aware of who Jesus is, yet without any profit. The destructiveness is seen in every aspect of the account, isn't it? They get off the boat, and where do they land? They land in a graveyard, if you will, carved into a, a cliff face. Uh, you imagine a scene where there's all these little caves and, and, and little holes in the wall and, and an abandoned-looking dusty road. Perhaps you see a tumbleweed go by, like one, like one of those old Western movies. And this is where they land, in the land of the dead. Christ has come into the belly of the beast. And he encounters two demoniacs. Look at the text with me. When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And what's the first detail we're told about them other than that they're demon-possessed? They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. Now, why would you avoid a place where there's extreme violence? Because you don't want to get killed. You don't wish to be injured. You want to preserve your life and your well-being. And so the whole setting, including the characters that inhabit this setting, are bent upon the destruction of life. Now, in, in, in the picture of Jewish ritual and religion, this would be a terribly unclean place. This is not somewhere you would go on your way to worship. You don't want to become defiled or ceremonially unclean by coming into contact with the dead or with death. But these men, they have no regard for that because they've been possessed by unclean, deathly spirits who have driven them into this desolate setting, in this place of uncleanness and chaos. And then we're given another detail in verse 30. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them, literally far away from them, but yet within eyesight, within their field of vision. So not only is this one locale particularly defiled with death and marked by death, but even the whole region of the Gadarenes, these people were keeping swine, whether they were Gentiles or they were just uh, rebellious Israelites trying to make a profit off of what the Romans liked to eat um, against God's uh, express command not to be keepers of swine. Whatever the case may be, this whole area is just marked by death and defilement. It's a deadly place to be, a place of uncleanness and chaos. Now, these men, they would have been marauders, if you will. They would have been like highwaymen in the American West, uh, taking advantage of unsuspecting travelers. And they would be the kinds of guys that um, are described for us in Proverbs 14, in Proverbs, or Proverbs 4, verse 16, we read, they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. 
unless they bring harm to someone. That's what these guys are living for, if we can even say that they're living at all. There's something about, about them, like zombies, the living dead. That's the picture that's given to us. These men who live in the graves, even uh, in the general vicinity of herds of pigs and swine. And this, this whole setting gives us this first aspect of demonic evil as we encounter it on the front end, and that is that it is destructive, that it leads to death. And so, too, is the nature of sin, indeed, even your sin. We, we confessed a little bit earlier about the misery of that estate wherein two men fell. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. What is communion with God? But the picture of life. God is the source of life. We've lost that by the fall, are under his wrath and curse. What is the curse? It is death itself, and so may liable to all the miseries of this life to death itself and the pains of hell forever. Do you regard your sin? Do you regard your own transgressions against the law of God with such a picture? You are, as it were, like these demon-possessed men, fleeing, running to make a habitation out of tombs, to dwell and to lie down with the dead. Do you treat your sin, boys and girls, with that level of seriousness? Do you understand what's at stake here? You have a way of life and a way of death. The demons are seeking to, pour you, to pull you into this destructive way of death. Well, enough on that point drawn from the setting and the general description of these men, now we can look at their words and, and gather something else, something perhaps a bit more profound even about the nature of demonic evil. And that is that uh, the demons are fully aware of who Jesus is, yet without any profit or benefit to themselves. Look at what these men say to Jesus. They cried out, literally, they shrieked at him in this encounter as they're confronting him, saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? What does that tell you about them? They recognize Christ for who he is. Nobody had to tell him, hear ye, hear ye, son of God cometh. They see him and they know precisely who he is. And what do they know about him? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What are they referring to? They know that Jesus is, as he will reveal about himself later, the one who comes to, to break the power of the strong man. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, he says, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. They know that Jesus has come to break the power of their master, the devil. Now, what do they know uh, about the timing of all this? Well, they know that the kingdom of God is at hand, that Christ has come, but they, they say something curious. Have you come to torment us before the time? As if they, they know that, that it's not quite... Um, the moment, the, the appropriate time for Christ to have uh, all his conquest laid out before him. Now, I take this to be in reference to Judgment Day. What's well, described in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, when Jesus will throw all those spiritual forces of evil into the lake of fire for their eternal torment and destruction. But surely, uh, they, they know that Christ has come bearing with him the kingdom to their uh, demerit, 
not to their advantage, but to their disadvantage uh, against them. The, the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his bride, the church, and his army. They know all this about Jesus. Indeed, James tells us in his epistle that the demons, they know God and they tremble, they shudder. They don't smile. They don't uh, rejoice. They're laid low. And that's the response we see here. This morning, Dr. Piper and I had the delight of welcoming uh, two households into membership here at Antioch. And as we did so, we reviewed the five, um, the five membership vows that our denomination requires us to review, wisely requires us to review when examining members. And the second membership vow has to do with Christ. That second question that we ask in the membership vow is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Now, if we stopped right there, these demoniacs, and the demons that possess them could answer in the affirmative. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. That's how they address him. But the question continues. And those of you who are members in PCA churches, this is a helpful reminder. Not only do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, but as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, and do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? You know what? No demon can answer I do to this profound question of Christ and his salvation. No demon can claim Christ as his savior. Indeed, fallen angels cannot be saved. They can confess who Christ is as son of God, but they cannot confess with any prophet that he is the savior of sinners that he has accomplished redemption and salvation, that his person and work is applied to needy sinners, and thus they are saved. What about you? Boys and girls, you're growing up in these covenant homes where you're being instructed from God's word, you're being catechized, you're learning all these questions and answers, you're storing up all this knowledge in those, those, uh, those plastic little brains of yours that are growing at, at, a, at a rabbit's pace. But do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you rest upon Him? Is there any profit to all this knowledge that you're receiving from your parents and from their faithful ministry to you? I challenge you this evening, do not be as these demons confessing that Jesus is the Son of God yet without any good for them. Lay hold of Christ as your Savior. Recognize Him as your Redeemer. For that's how he's being held out to you. He's coming to you not merely or only, I should say, as the son of God. For surely that's how he comes as a judge. But he's coming as a savior of sinners and as the lover of your souls. You have been immeasurably blessed to be born into families that set forth Christ in this manner to you. That you might not know him as judge on that day when he comes to separate the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. Notice that these demons, they are fully aware of Jesus is, and yet 
without any benefit from themselves, for they are bound for that which they seek to impose upon others, and that is death and destruction. And that leads us to our second point, and that is Christ's deliverance of his people. We've seen the nature of demonic evil as it's presented briefly to us in this text with these two demoniacs. And now we can consider what Jesus does about it for the good of these two men. Now, it's worth noting at this point that if you go to Mark and Luke's gospel accounts, they mention only one man. But they also give us a lot more details about that man who's filled with the demon named Legion, who, who cuts himself with potsherds, who breaks the chains of men that they use to bind him. And perhaps that's because of the two, one of them was particularly energetic and violent and uncontrollable. But here in Matthew's gospel, he's not contradicting Luke or Mark. He's rather giving us a different detail, that there are two men here. And, and Christ has come to deliver both of them. Now, the demons began to entreat him in verse 31, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And this gives Christ now an occasion to demonstrate his deliverance of his people for their good, doesn't it? And there are two things that he shows us in how he responds to this prayer request from the demons. He shows us how his deliverance is accomplished. It's accomplished by a word. And then he also shows us how his deliverance is received by those who are not his people. And that is that it's not received at all. It's rejected by the faithless who are there in the scene as well, but we have yet to consider because we're not, we haven't gotten to those verses yet. So in the first place, Jesus said to them, go. And they came out, that is, the demons came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. When Jesus says, go, it really is just one word. We could translate it, be going, or be on your way, or get out of here. But it really is just one word in the Greek, literally translated, go. And as he does so, he's not giving them a commission He's not sending them forth on some errand or on some mission. Rather, he is dismissing them. He's casting them out. And this one little word demonstrates for us his power, which is expressed doctrinally in other places, his power over spiritual forces. Paul will describe this in his epistles at several points, and they're all worth reflecting upon. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, that great, uh, that great pair of verses that we use to encourage ourselves and others when faced with all kinds of, of trials. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels fallen angels, nor principalities, it's another word for spiritual powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Paul develops this further in Colossians 2.15, where he's um, looking upon Christ's work, and he writes, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, that is, Jesus Christ, stating doctrinally what we see occurring in the narrative that Matthew gives us in Matthew chapter 8, and that is that Jesus has all power over these spiritual forces of darkness. And then in Ephesians 1.21, we're given a picture of the end. 
of the, the, the final culmination of Christ's activity against these dark powers, forcing them back out of his domain. Christ will, uh, is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Indeed, what Matthew shows us by his narrative, inspired by the Spirit, Paul gives us in terms of doctrine inspired by the same Spirit. And that is that Jesus has such power over the demons that he pronounces just one word, and they fly away. Jesus' power, it doesn't appeal to our senses. It's not flashy. He doesn't wave a magic wand. He doesn't perform some kind of ritual. He doesn't even force them physically to the ground and say, uh, be gone. This isn't a Benny Hinn production, mind you, or Kenneth Copeland or something goofy. And this isn't a magic trick. Jesus is no magician or sorcerer. He's the Holy One, the Son of God. And all he does is pronounce the unadorned word. And they fly. They go away. Um, this is the nature of God's word represented to us in just literally one word. It turns back. It's effective. It is sufficient to defeat the powers of darkness. It's plain. Yes, it's majestic, but it's not flashy. I remember when I was a junior in high school. I'll never forget this. I was just talking to Mrs. Groff about this the other day. Uh, a classmate of mine, we had just read The Great Gatsby in our American literature class, and a classmate of mine made the comment, and I couldn't believe it, even as a young Christian myself, I just couldn't believe anyone would, would say this. He said, this book was so good. This was the best book I've ever read. This is probably the greatest book ever written. And I was like, really? Greater than the Bible? He said, absolutely. And I thought, the great Gatsby? It's not even that good. It's lame. It's, a, it's, a, it's an indulgent story of some narcissist. I mean, come on. Um, I'm not a big fan of F. Scott Fitzgerald's writing style anyway in terms of my own preferences. But that's one illustration. The world will, will herald the productions of mere men as, as more appealing to their tastes, more uh, delightful to their eyes and their own dispositions. But the great Gatsby can never do what the Bible does and has done what God's word does. For at God's word, at the declaration of it, the powers of darkness are turned back. And men who were suffering and mutilating themselves are set free. And free to do what? To sit at Christ's feet. Look, we read that the herdsmen of the swine ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Uh, Mark and Luke give us additional details that the demoniac, uh, at least one man, is seated at Jesus' feet, docile, cleaned up, not raging, not attacking anybody, and they're struck with fear and terror. Indeed, that's what happens here. Uh, why, why did the herdsmen run away? Well, they were full of fear at what had just happened to all these swine. 2,000 were told in Mark's account. And, and why do the townspeople then come to Jesus and say, go away? 
because they're struck with terror and fear at what he has accomplished in, uh, in the deliverance of this, his man, his chosen one, out of the tyranny of darkness and demonic possession. And in this, we see not only deliverance by a word and the glorious power of God's word, but also deliverance which is sadly rejected by these faithless herdsmen and townsfolk. The herdsmen, selfish and fearful. Perhaps they're worried that they're going to get penalized for this massive loss of property. I mean, it's 2,000 pigs just ran off a cliff. That's worth something. As an aside, I, um, when I was in Pennsylvania, I went to a state prayer breakfast uh, with um, a chaplain for Valley Forge Military Academy. He was a friend of mine. He invited me to go with him and some of the cadets. And so I went up to Harrisburg, and we get there. The special guest speaker was the chairman and CEO of Hatfield Meats, which is a pig slaughterhouse. And I'll never forget this. We were eating sausage that morning, and breakfast sausage, and in a room full of legislators and elected judges and all these, you know, kind of uh, real white-collar politicians, state-level elected officials, including the governor. The governor was there, too. Um, this CEO just kind of said, matter-of-factly said, we slaughter 12 million pigs a year. And you could hear the gasp in the room. These people were utterly disgusted by it. But his point was, because his company had suffered three total losses in their history as a family-owned company over 150 years where everything burned to the ground and they rebuilt back up, his point was, and I give thanks to God that we can be this productive, that we can generate this much revenue. Well, it wasn't 12 million pigs that ran off the cliff, but it was 2,000. And for these two herdsmen, that represented a great value, just as it did for this man at the prayer breakfast where I attended. And so they were filled with fear and probably a selfish fear, not wanting to be penalized. Now, what would you do in this situation if the pigs just inexplicably ran off and you're looking around and you see the crazy demoniac who lives in the, in the graveyard sitting peacefully, perhaps with a robe on him, with a group of men, would your first instinct be to, man, I really got to go address this thing with the pigs? Or would you think, this has got to be connected? And at least go investigate what's happening with that guy before you run into the town. Well, we see how these herdsmen reject Christ's deliverance, this demonstration of his power. Indeed, your selfishness will get in the way of recognizing the goodness of God in your life. And do not let your selfishness distract you from what it is Christ is doing. And then here in the, in the final verse, the whole city comes out to meet Jesus. It's probably a small village, but everybody in it comes out to meet Jesus. And we're expecting at this point, having gone through the first seven and a half chapters of Matthew, we're expecting them to, to welcome him, to celebrate him, to marvel at his authority and his power. But no, they don't do any of that. They implore him to leave. They ask him to go away, just like Amaziah did to Amos not recognizing the deliverance that God has wrought. Isn't it interesting that in Amos chapter 7, this is the only place where we really have a clear picture of a prophet being asked to go away, um, being told, you don't have any business here. In, in Amos chapter 7, a whole book about judgment, 
and doom and gloom, we have three visions that God gives Amos, and Amos pleads for deliverance, and God relents and grants deliverance. And what is the response that immediately follows is a rejection of the prophet, of the word of God, and asking him to go away. Isn't that precisely what we see here in Matthew chapter 8? Christ has worked this wonderful uh, reversal of darkness. And what's the response? Go away. These townsfolk were full of fear, as we're told in the other Gospels, and perhaps they too, like the herdsmen, were callous and selfish, more concerned about their loss of swine, of these filthy pigs, than they were about the restoration of these two demoniacs, men who should have been struck with wonder and awe and amazement, who should have welcomed Christ with open arms and brought to him their sick and their, 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 their broken and their demon-possessed people in, in the land, instead to say, go away, leave us. Let us never be so callous and fearful as these men. Let us recognize that Christ is the deliverer, that he indeed is able to save his people and that he's willing to do it. And let's welcome him into our midst. By the end of Matthew chapter 8, Christ indeed has been declared the Son of God at his baptism in Matthew chapter 3, triumphed over the temptations of Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, authoritatively refuted the corruption of the Pharisees' teaching, how they've twisted God's law to be a law of man. In the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is doing, correcting their false teaching, and with authority, and recognizes such. And then he has delivered his people from a variety of physical ailments and threats, natural sickness and storm, even here, supernatural demon possession showing us indeed the gates of hell will not prevail against his assault. There's nothing he can't accomplish for his people's good. There's nothing he can't do for his Father's glory. He has met every test. But remarkably, he confronts something new at the end of our passage that he will increasingly encounter throughout Matthew's gospel, rejection by faithless men. Now, this group, there's no indication that they were hostile to him or that they threatened him. They just asked him to leave. But in the next chapter, the Pharisees are going to grow in their hostility. And we're going to see the schemes of men to come against the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Messiah, inexplicably so. And Matthew's going to take on a more somber, even tragic uh, um, tone uh, having come upon this triumph, triumph of Christ and the revelation of his kingdom. Now, this might cause us to question his power as we go through the rest of the gospel. If he truly can do all things, then why does he face rejection and fierce opposition? As we face that question in weeks to come, as we work through Matthew's gospel together, we will do well to remember that Christ, the Son of God, takes command even in those situations that there are demonic forces at play, twisting the minds of men, but Christ is at the helm in all of it. He is commanding all of this as he's going up against the household of chaos 
and evil. And as we see how he steers every encounter, every conflict, every occasion to the salvation of his people, let us grow then in our confidence, not only of his power to save, but of his success of his mission. As we're marching to that glorious statement, when he says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I've commanded you. And lo, behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Matthew's gospel is a gospel of confidence. It starts on this great note of fulfillment of prophecy and the power of Christ and the coming of his kingdom. And now as we're going to be uh, seeing how Christ handles rejection and opposition, we look forward. Even as we remember what he's already done, we look forward to that full revelation of his kingly authority. And we marvel and how he's commanding all things for the good of his people and the glory of his God, our God. Let's pray together. Let's stand together and pray. Sorry. O Lord, most high in heaven above, we bless your name and we thank you that you have given to us your word, which indeed is able to convert the sinner, able to build up and to encourage the saint, able to comfort the afflicted, to heal, and to turn away the powers of darkness. Lord, we pray that you would grant to us comfort this evening as we consider all the forces which are at work against your people in the world today. How there are men, even now, mutilating themselves and causing terror and violence in the land. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy, that you would pour out your spirit and apply your word in such a way that your people would be liberated and delivered. Lord, we pray for the salvation of our neighbors and for our children. Lord God, protect us and preserve us against the forces of evil, that you might be glorified as we continue to declare your praises from sanctified lips. Indeed, this evening, we dedicate ourselves and all our efforts and all that we are to you. And we dedicate a portion of that which you've given to us, to your use and to your praise and your glory. We pray now that you would receive from our hands this small gift and that you would put it to use for the building up of the saints and the extension of your kingdom and the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.